electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome, everybody, to Power Lunch. Uh, along with uh, Contessa, I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's what's ahead. Uh, big tech versus a recession. Apple, Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, Google, all of them report earnings this week, and they're all facing their biggest challenge yes, yet, an economic slowdown on the horizon. We will look at which ones are best positioned for right now and what's ahead. Plus, GM and Ford, both down 40% this year, and both will try to win over skeptical investors when they report their profits uh, later this week. An auto bullfight straight ahead, Contessa. Get your red cape out. Wall Street adding to last week's rally. The Dow touched a six-week high intraday. Right now, it's up 1.1% or 344 points. The S&P 500 is up 30 points, up almost a percent. The Nasdaq composite up 21 points or two-tenths of a percent, bouncing back from being down 146 points earlier in the session. The Dow being led higher by Amgen, Honeywell, and Home Depot. And there you can see Amgen, the leader, up 3% at this point. The two Dow laggards are Nike and Disney. Let's take a look at those. You've got Nike off, oh, a little more than half a percent, and the same for Walt Disney. The best performing stocks in the S&P are from three different sectors. You've got HCA, Tractor Supply, and Regions Financial there, all up about a 5% or so. Tyler? Well, Contessa, mega cap tech companies are not immune to the market downturn this year in no way. Uh, Meta and Netflix uh, cut in half this year alone. So how are the world's largest tech companies preparing for a possible recession on top of all this? Julia Borston covering the social media angle. Steve Kovac on how Apple and Microsoft are handling a possible slowdown. Deidre Bosa on Amazon and Alphabet. And Casey Newton, platformer editor and CNBC contributor, here to discuss it all. Julia, let's start with you. Uh, you are going to look at a couple of the social media giants for us. That's right, Tyler. Well, after Snap raised red flags about a dramatically slowing ad market, especially into the end of the year, there are growing concerns about Meta's earnings, which are coming up Wednesday afternoon. That stock is down more than 60 percent this year. Those declines prompting Brad Gerstner, CEO of Altimeter Capital, which held over two million shares of Meta at the end of Q2, to write an open letter to the company calling on Meta to reduce headcount expense by at least 20 percent, to reduce annual capex by at least 5 billion from 30 billion to 25 billion and to limit investment in metaverse reality labs to no more than 5 billion per year that's about half of what Meta is investing right now. This comes as Bank of America downgrades Meta, warning that while expectations have already been lowered, more advertiser budget cuts could further weigh on sentiment and drive added uncertainty on top of changes to adapt to Apple's limits of ad targeting and also, of course, the company's transition to make money on that Reels video format. Tyler? All right, so uh, how much should we expect Meta, Julia, to follow Snap in terms of disappointing results? Well, that's the question here, is that 
Is SNAP Bellwether, the challenges that SNAP's having, and this murky forecast that SNAP sees forecasting that Q4 will end flat in terms of revenue growth, is Meta going to be better positioned to navigate some of these challenges? Are some of the new ad formats going to help them provide alternatives when it comes to targeting and working around Apple's operating system changes that have put up these roadblocks for them? And then also the fact that Meta is so massive, is that scale going to prove an advantage? And one thing we have to remember here is that Meta's been talking a lot about these long-term metaverse plans. Are we going to hear them sort of getting back to basics and talking about focusing more on streamlining and really honing in on the importance of the ad business? All right, Casey, let's turn over to you and get your reactions uh, on Meta and Snap. Are the social media companies, broadly speaking, prepared, uh, particularly insofar as they're dependent on advertising, uh, for what could be a, uh, a serious recession? Yeah, look, I think in the case of Snap and Meta, the answer seems to be no. These companies have been battered by app tracking transparency, and they're struggling to find alternatives that are going to get them back to the growth that investors want to see. You know, with Meta in particular, I've sort of been waiting for the market and the big shareholders to catch up to just how difficult a pivot the company is trying to pull off. And I think with these earnings, we may finally see people starting to understand that this is a company that's in trouble. All right, Casey, we want to talk about the headwinds facing the two largest tech companies, Microsoft and Apple. So let's turn to Steve Kovac, who covered these two companies. Steve, what can you tell us? Hey there, Contessa. Yeah, Apple and Microsoft are actually two of the most resistant names that we're talking about today to this recession. So they're still taking steps, though, to keep growth, even if that growth growth is expected to be moderate. For Apple, that means raising prices. Just today, they raised prices on services like Apple TV Plus and Apple Music by a buck or two per month. Also, they raised prices on the App Store earlier this month in the EU and other countries where the dollar is the strongest. And the iPhone 14 is about 100 bucks more expensive in those very same markets. So the challenges for Apple through the end of the year hope that iPhone demand holds up even as other consumer tech companies see it falling, especially in the PC market. Now over to Microsoft, speaking of PCs. Microsoft already cutting jobs. In the summer, they cut less than 1% of their workforce. And just last week, 1,000 employees were let go. So Microsoft's challenge in the coming months, hoping that IT spend among small and medium businesses can hold up and that their Azure cloud growth stays steady or increases. But that's going to be a lot tougher for them in this foreign exchange environment, guys. Why why do you think, Steve, that these two companies have held up better than their peers. Yeah, it's a little different. So Apple is kind of unique and for a consumer electronic company, we're seeing PC demand uh, just tank across the board. We heard those warnings from NVIDIA, AMD, and Microsoft throughout the summer. But look, when we spoke to Apple last quarter, they said we can't make enough stuff to even really test the demand. So they're in this kind of unique position because of those COVID shutdowns in China that they just weren't able to make enough products to, to see if they can do it. And plus, there's still that perception that the higher end consumer is holding up better amid these inflationary headwinds. Uh, than some of the other consumers contest All right. Uh, thank you for that, Steve. Casey, let me get your thoughts here. I mean, what are the real problems facing Apple? What are the problems facing Microsoft? Yeah, well, you heard Steve mentioned uh, a couple of them. You know, the recession is going to challenge them on, uh, you know, the, the the sort of hardware front, you know, supply chain issues, that sort of thing. But I think it's worth saying that 
uh, Microsoft and Apple have solved the thing that Meta and Snap have failed to, which is building big diversified businesses that let them make money both off of selling the hardware, then selling a bunch of services, and then raising the price on those services when things start to get a little tight, right? So my perspective is that these two companies are navigating this very well, and I do not expect them to be significantly challenged here in the next few months. How much uh, weight do you give the Chinese Communist Party meeting that happened, this reconsolidation of power for Xi Jinping, the doubling down on zero COVID policy, and, and what a lot of investors are spooked could mean a real uh, threat competitively to their business in China against state-run enterprises. Yeah, I think it's definitely the biggest near-term challenge to Apple. We see almost every day the Biden administration is issuing some new executive order that dictates how and when chips can be manufactured, what Americans are and aren't allowed to do. And so there's just kind of a giant cloud of uncertainty there. We know that wait, Apple so are you, has- but, uh, wait, wait, Casey, are you saying that you see the problem coming more from the White House than from China? I think uh, I, I think the problem is coming from both places. I think that the the instability that you're seeing, the tensions between those two countries, is just making it increasingly mm -hmm. difficult for Apple, given how dependent it is on China for its manufacturing, even though it has started to try to diversify away from it. All righty, let's move on. Thank you, Casey. We'll be right back to you. Um, Amazon and Alphabet now uh, both exposed to the slowdown in consumer demand that is hitting Amazon's e-commerce business and Alphabet's ad revenue. Deidre Bosa on how they are handling it. Deidre. So, Tyler, these two names are somewhere in the middle. Unlike Meta and Snap, they are more resilient and their business models are more diversified. So both have large cloud businesses that have held up relatively well this year, offsetting that weak ad market and slowing e-commerce demand in the case of Amazon. Uh, but they also have not been as solid as a Microsoft or an Apple. No one hired more than Amazon did coming out of the pandemic or spent as much to build up capacity. Um, so Andy Jassy, though, he addressed it earlier than others, and he spent billions of dollars to restore efficiency. So key question, does that actually put them in a better position heading into the holiday shopping season? Um, watch for guidance here on what the company is expecting. Amazon does give it. Alphabet, however, does not provide guidance, but Sunar Pichai and Ruth Porat, they may update investors on that 20% better efficiency drive that Pichai laid out a few months ago. That is going to be key. Also here, guys, YouTube's going to be key because this is more affected by those Apple privacy changes versus search advertising, which is seen to hold up, hold up relatively better. We think of these two companies in lots of ways as very much consumer facing and in many ways they are. But to the extent that they have cloud units and are dependent on cloud revenue, it could also give us some clues about enterprise software and the state of same. Uh, right or wrong? Absolutely. Um, these are they have big enterprise cloud businesses. Amazon has the number one. It is far, far larger than Google Cloud. It's also profitable. Google Cloud has really been in investment mode, taking losses to gain market share. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how much in terms of losses the company is willing to sustain. CFO Ruth Porat tells me every quarter that there will be no scaling back in this department. We'll see if that is the same. Of course, Azure is in the middle, much, much bigger player than Google Cloud. But altogether, these three companies are going to tell us and give us clues about the state of enterprise IT spending. And if it's slower than the street's expecting, that could very well be a big downside surprise. All right, Deidre, thanks very much. Casey, let me get your reactions to what Deidre just said uh, about um, Alphabet and Amazon. But also more broadly speaking, 
Are tech companies more or less exposed to recession pressures, pressures than the average company? Well, I mean, look, there, there are benefits to being some of the biggest companies in the world, right? These companies have a lot of cash on their balance sheets. They can ride out a rough couple of quarters without too much problem. I do think there's question uh, on where consumer demand is going to be during this holiday quarter. You know, during the pandemic, we thought that Amazon would see that demand just kind of keep going through the roof forever. And in fact, we saw the opposite, right? It started to contract as people started to go out and shop again. So for me, that's the real big question mark. And I think it'll affect Google too, right? These companies have done a great job at capturing that intent in search. And it's one reason why their ad businesses haven't been as affected. But of course, if consumer demand goes down, they're going to feel that too. All right, Casey, thanks very much. Uh, and uh, to our team as well, our thanks to all of you. We appreciate it. Meantime, a news alert out of Washington. Eamon Javers uh, has the details. Hey, Eamon. Tyler, that's right over at the Department of Justice in Washington. They're holding a press conference right now announcing a slew of charges against Chinese intelligence officials and other Chinese officials here in a variety of cases, including one new case that we're just learning the details of today. That case involves two Chinese intelligence agents who, according to the Department of Justice, tried to penetrate a U.S. law enforcement agency in order to get information about a prosecution of a company that we are told by a source familiar that is Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications company. According to uh, this version of events, uh, the two Chinese intelligence agents tried to get a U.S. official to flip and give them intel on what prosecutors were thinking in terms of their strategy against Huawei, but instead the U.S. official became a double agent in this case and provided fake information to the Chinese and sort of lured them into a trap in which the U.S. says they were able to prove that these intelligence agents uh, were up to no good and were trying to manipulate the Justice Department uh, here in the United, the justice process, I should say, here in the United States. So a fascinating look at Chinese espionage in very much real time. Some of the information in the documents uh, that we're seeing here is from last fall. So this is very much present day activity by Chinese intelligence in the United States, Tyler. Back so, over to you. So did you, it either went by me or you said it, what law enforcement agency were they trying to infiltrate or affect? They don't say, but in the documents associated with this, the agent, the, the person who's communicating with the Chinese spies indicates that he or she is going to be attending meetings uh, involving the, the prosecutors in the case against Huawei. So uh, we can assume that this is somebody, you know, either Department of Justice, Eastern District of New York, FBI, somebody that the Chinese intelligence agents thought uh, that they could persuade they to could give turn. them information about the process. They were trying to turn an American official. Instead, that American official turned twice, became a double agent, the government says, uh, and was able to provide information back to the United States about the two Chinese agents, including one comical detail. At one point, the Chinese agents are asking the person that they think is the American spy to communicate with them with a payphone on the street because they thought that would be more secure. And he says, he or she says, I can't find the payphone. They don't, I don't think they exist anymore. <laughs> so it's tough for spies these days. Yeah. Yeah, it makes the business much more complicated. Eamon, thank you for that. Coming up, beyond big tech, why industrials like Boeing, Caterpillar, and GE could offer investors big clues about the health of the economy when they report this week. Plus, GM versus Ford. Both are down 40% this year, both facing questions about production, supply chains, rising costs. A look at which is better. And before the break, Amgen and Merck both hitting new 52-week highs in today's session. We'll have more Power Lunch in two minutes.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Now to a battle of auto heavyweights. General Motors and Ford both report earnings this week. Stocks down sharply this year, and they're facing production issues and rising costs. So which stock is the better bet? Here with the bull case for GM is Michael Ward, auto analyst at the Benchmark Company. And in the Ford camp is Garrett Nelson, senior auto analyst at CFRA. Uh, CFRA. Guys, thank you very much for joining us today. All right, I thought that these companies, don't they sort of move in tandem, Michael? Absolutely. And, and in fact, it's not just GM and Ford that are down big this year. Virtually every vehicle manufacturer is down 40% this year. All right, so which would, which, which would you like to make a bet on, GM or Ford? In the near term, GM. And I think that's really just near-term earnings this week. I think you're going to see very strong earnings from General Motors when they release tomorrow, in part because there are vehicles they couldn't deliver in the second quarter, which will be delivered in the third quarter. Ironically, Ford will have the same benefit when fourth quarter earnings are released in January. Okay. And and what do you think, Garrett? Yeah, we prefer Ford here for a few reasons, but we like the combination of growth and yield Uh, that the stock offers. Ford recently raised their dividend by 50% over the summer. The stock's yielding almost 5% here. Uh, We think uh, CEO Jim Farley really has the company on the right track. And we like the direction that they're taking with their EV strategy as far as phasing in EVs and not setting a date in the future in which they'll be all electric, which we think is a risky strategy. But we like how the the excitement that they're building surrounding certain models like the F-150 Lightning the Ford Mustang Mach-E and the Bronco has been very successful. So we prefer uh, Ford here. And it sounds to me, given those reasons, that this might be a preference even for the mid to long term. That's right. Um, You know, the stock, both these stocks have been hit hard, as you mentioned, year to date. Sentiment is really awful across the auto industry because they're struggling with inflation, uh, ongoing parts shortages, chip shortages, Um, slowing consumer discretionary spending, and now rising interest rates. But the good news is a lot of these concerns we feel are priced in, and we can see a light at at the end of the tunnel as far as rate increases here in the next three to six months. So uh, we do see much uh, better performance ahead in uh, 2023. Michael Garrett sort of ticked off several of the reasons why automakers as a group may be suffering uh, take that on and tell me why they're suffering. Do you agree with uh, with Garrett completely? Because my impression was there are a lot of buyers out there who want to buy. Maybe there's a supply problem. They can't get the cars that uh, that, that are needed. But my sense is that demand is, is hanging in there pretty well. Absolutely it is. And I agree with Garrett on that. You know, unfortunately, I've been following the autos for about 40 years, so I've seen a lot of these cycles. There are huge differences this time around. We are in a downturn in the auto sector in the North American market. 
unlike previous downturns, in the past, you had this excess inventory that you basically had to wind down, and that exaggerated the downturn. We're in a direct opposite situation today. You're going to be building inventory for at least the next year. In addition, when you look at GM and Ford specifically, they've reduced break-even levels by more than 50%. They have no need to restructure their balance sheets or their product. And then lastly, as Garrett was kind of alluding to there, the EV story for both General Motors and Ford, the biggest growth in EVs is going to come on the commercial side. And GM and Ford are by far the best positioned companies to capture growth from the the commercial side of the electric vehicle market. Garrett, I'm just curious if GM is more dependent on China uh, and than Ford is, how do you factor in uh, China into the U.S. automakers moving forward and, and what's happening there? Sure. GM is more levered to China. Uh, roughly 40% of their sales volume uh, is in China. So they're a little more levered uh, to that market, which is why we prefer Ford. Another reason why we like the stock, more levered to the North American market. And uh, their sales have really outperformed the industry in recent quarters. If you look at the third quarter, Ford's sales volume in the U.S. was up 16%. Uh, the the rest of the industry was down about one percent. So um, they're doing very well. As, if you look at their portfolio, and I think really what's different for both companies this time, as opposed to looking back at uh, 2008, is their balance sheets are in much better shape to weather a downturn. So that's a really important uh, characteristic. Ford is sitting on about 45 billion dollars of total liquidity, which is close to the company's market cap at these levels. So. Uh, It's a pretty amazing statistic. Well, Garrett Nelson, we appreciate you joining us. Michael Ward, our thanks to you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow, don't miss a first on CNBC interview with Mary Barra, GM chair and CEO. That's tomorrow at 7.45 a.m. Eastern time on Squawk Box. And coming up, a party crasher. China's Xi tightening his grip on power, heading for an unprecedented third term as supreme leader there. And it's hitting China exposed names in the markets. Plus, it's not only politics abroad in focus. Business is a key issue on uh, the ballot here in the U.S. Americans are angry about the economy, and that could help Republicans during the midterms. We will discuss all this when Power Lunch continues. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Macau Casino stocks plummeting today. Look at Las Vegas Sands. You can see that down almost 12% on the day. And that was uh, an improvement, believe it or not. Melco Resorts, which is based in Hong Kong, but traded here, uh, down almost 13%. You've got Wynn Resorts off 5%. MGM Resorts kind of flirting with turning positive here. Remember, MGM relies far less heavily on its Macau revenue than the others. One investor put it to me like this today. These guys just can't catch a break. The Chinese Communist Party meeting this weekend consolidated Xi Jinping's power <coughs> and a third term. That, those worries that he will move to give preference to state-owned enterprises to the disadvantage of especially Western businesses could be propelling some of the sell-off that we see for the U.S. 
casino companies with big business in Macau. Does Xi control Macau completely? Well, no, Macau is a special administrative right, region. That's what I thought. But like Hong Kong, you can see it beginning to hew more closely with the party line coming out of Beijing, certainly with where it, it um, concerns the zero infection policy that we've seen, and, and Xi Jinping just doubled down on that again. That spells trouble for these casinos. And don't forget, they're in the middle of concession renewal. That is, they're applying for their licenses to come up again. And I think that there's some concern on the part of investors about whether this effort to consolidate power for China could spell real challenges and hurdles for the U.S. companies. Are there Chinese SOEs that could do what Las Vegas Sands does? They and can operate? And they already are. They operate um, competitively in Macau. But remember, there was a surprise bidder in Genting, which is an Asian company, not Chinese, but an Asian company that operates theme parks and, and, and the like. And they came in and resorts rolled among many others that we know here in the United States. They came in with a surprise bid to give some competitive challenge to these other companies that already hold the license. Fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. Brian Sullivan is standing by with a CNBC News update. Brian. Hi, Tyler. Thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. In Myanmar, an ethnic group and rescue workers say as many as 80 people died in an airstrike by the country's own military. The reported attack hit a big political event of an ethnic minority. It comes just three days before Southeast Asian ministers will hold a special meeting to discuss increasing violence in Myanmar. Rishi Sunak will become Britain's next prime minister tomorrow morning. Sunak is set to meet King Charles tomorrow before speaking outside 10 Downing Street. And just in time for Halloween, a Belgian town celebrating a novel use for big pumpkins. Racers are paddling hollowed out jumbo gourds around a pond. 65 teams of four people participated in the pumpkin regatta. Organizers said the event started as a way to put big pumpkins grown for competition to good use. There we go, only in Belgium. Out of their gourds. There, this is a good use of the big gourds. I mean, I've heard of stuffed pumpkins, but. I've heard of smashing pumpkins, but that's a band. <laughs> yep. Look at that. That's pretty cool. It's also Brian, thank you. I'd, I'd love to take you on in one of those one day. Oh, we'd sink. We, <laughs> I sure would. All right, ahead on Power Launch, folks, big, beyond big tech, it is a huge week for earnings. But while most investors are hyper-focused on tech, there are some key industrial stocks on deck that could have serious implications for the market. We're going to take a look ahead uh, with Stephanie Link next. Uh, and uh, as we head to a break, check out Avis Budget Group. J.P. Morgan upgrading the car rental agency to overweight the stock down 14% and up over 50% uh, this month. All right, 90 minutes left in the trading day. We want to get you caught up on the markets. Why not? Because it's a good time to do that. We've got stocks. Uh, we've got bonds. We've got commodities. We've got all kinds of things. And look ahead into a huge week in earnings and data. Let's begin uh, with the uh, new author, Bob Bazzani, at the NYSE on today's rally. The book is titled Shut Up and Keep Talking, isn't it? Yes, it is. I love and that that's title. what you hear in your ear. <laughs> well, that's what you hear. You hear some version of shut up and keep talking in your ear when you're waiting to go on. Just right. 
like right now. Important thing about today, and thanks for the plug, Tyler. Appreciate that. Uh, we are uh, in a bit of an uptrend for the S&P 500. We're up about 6% from the recent lows, two-year lows, uh, just a couple weeks ago. And if we can get above 37.90, folks, you want to watch 37.90 because that was the old recent high, October 4th. You get above that, well, you get a series of higher highs, and the technicians like it when that happens. It's a bit defensive today. Energy's been a leadership group. Uh, we've seen uh, healthcare strong today. We've got a bunch of new highs in healthcare. Uh, in fact, Lilly and Merck, Humana, uh, Cardinal Health uh, at 52-week high. So that's nice to see. Uh, we're also seeing some nice moves up in consumer staple stocks. So uh, Kraft is up, Coke, Pepsi, uh, Colgate uh, is moving nicely today. Again, this is sort of a defensive rally, but we'll take it. It still helps the advanced decline line overall. Uh, as for uh, big cap tech, remember, the big names report this week. So Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, all doing uh, reporting this week. Meta got a big B of A downgrade uh, today. But remember something, these companies have all had their earnings estimates reduced for the third quarter already. In the case of Meta, about 30%, in fact, from the start of the quarter, 40% uh, in the case of Amazon. So there have already been very, very significant earnings reductions uh, in these names. And that may help cushion any kind of disappointment that we have coming forward. Tyler, back to you. Robert, thank you very much. Let's move now to the bond market, where we saw a reversal in yields, which are now up again. Rick Santelli tracking the action. Explain it all to us, Rick. Yes, there's a lot of volatility, that's for sure, Tyler. And if you look at a three-day of two-year, I picked three-day because on the Thursday, the 20th, they made their high-yield close for this cycle. That was at 4.61%. At 4.5%, we could see we're 11 basis points below that level, and the short maturities have a greater distance below the recent cycle highs. And that's because, of course, uh, that we have uh, different reporters for a major Wall Street publication that continues to point us in the direction that the Fed may be looking to wind things from a more aggressive to a less aggressive stance as we move towards next year. Look at a three-day of 10s. Their high yield closes on the 21st. It was at 4.23%. Basically, we're hovering right there right now. If you look at Boone's, they already closed at 2.32%. Their high yield close was Friday at 242. And maybe the most aggressive one of all, considering all the politics and a new prime minister starting tomorrow, of course, the 10-year guilt in the UK. Now, this chart starts on the 12th, so about two weeks. Their high yield close was 4.5%. We're now 78 basis points below that. They closed today at 3.72%. And we're all talking about China, whether it's their closures, whether it's their big hoopla that they have, once again, for a Third record five-year term for G, but maybe the biggest news is that their currency, despite all of that, is still hovering at the lowest level versus the greenback since January of 2008. Tyler, back to you. Fascinating. That's amazing. Rick Santelli, thank you very much. Uh, energy market closing for the day. We're seeing big moves in that gas. Pippa Stevens covering it for us. Hey, Pippa. Hello, Tyler. We saw a big intraday swing for natural gas Earlier, it fell to 475, the lowest level since March 21st. But the contract subsequently catching a bid now up about 4.8 percent, right around $5.20 per MMBTU. Now, some of this support is thanks to traders betting the selling was overdone after NatGas posted a ninth straight losing week for the first time since 1991. Demand will jump as the heating season kicks off. 
although so far we've seen more mild temperatures. Turning to oil, which is modestly lower, although energy stocks are in the green, did want to point out shares of Exxon hitting an all-time high ahead of the company's earnings report on Friday. ConocoPhillips and Hess also hitting records, while SLB, formerly known as Schlumberger, trading around a four-year high. Tyler? All right, Peppa, thank you very much. With a third of the S&P 500 reporting this week, that's why we've got such focus on this week. We are looking beyond big tech now to industrials. Uh, and what results from Boeing and Caterpillar, GE, may tell us about the health of the economy. Here with a look ahead, Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Hightower Advisors, also a CNBC contributor. Stephanie, welcome back. Let's, uh, let's pivot away. We spent a lot of time talking about technology here. Take us into the... Uh, the big companies, the industrial companies, and what you expect to hear from the likes of them. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very interesting. Um, every The technology stocks are getting all the attention, right? But these are very big companies. And we're going to learn a lot about the macro. We're going to learn a lot about currency. We're going to learn about pricing and margins and sustainability. All three companies you mentioned. So let's start with Caterpillar. So Caterpillar, we know they've got accelerated pricing uh, throughout the quarter. And their input costs are actually coming down. That will be positive for their margins. Last quarter, it was a disappointment on the margin side. So this, this quarter... Uh, it should do a little bit better. We also know from conference season that they saw strong deliveries. It actually accelerated in the summertime. And of course, they do have very easy comparisons on price mix going forward. So I think it's going to be a good report. Um, the, the backlog is going to be the big question and the trajectory because it's strong right now. But if the economy slows, where do they see that going? And they have to convince us that $12 a share in earnings power can be achieved mid-cycle. Well, let's move on to Boeing, which is sort of second on your list. This is a company that has faced many, yeah. many, many challenges over the past five years. It has, and I own this one, so it's it's been painful, but... I think we're close, Tyler. Um, the stock is down 30%. Expectations are washed out. We know demand for new aircraft in the industry was up 600 net new orders in the third quarter due to international travel and business travel recovering. We know aftermarket global flights up 11% sequentially and up 14% on a year-over-year -year basis. That Those two points bode very well for Boeing. Now you get to the, the nitty-gritty, 737 MAX. The big question is, can they get deliveries to 50 a month and margins at 25%. I think eventually they can, not right away, but they're going to have to talk about that. 787, can they get back to seven a month? I think they can, but that's not until 2026. So we've got time. Why does this matter? It helps free cash flow, right? And that's what the stock trades at. So the bogey tomorrow, uh, yeah, tomorrow is 1 billion in free cash flow. Um, and I don't think we're going to get a ton of information on the conference call because they have an investor day on November 1st, right around the corner. So I think that's going to be a catalyst going forward. Stephanie, how important is free cash flow in what you're expecting from General Electric? Yeah. It is the it's the uh, most important thing um, for both for Boeing and for GE, right? So the industrial free cash flow for GE should come in anywhere from break even to 200 million. Of course, they have a guidance of four and a half to five and a half billion for the full year. I think they're going to come at the low end, Contessa, just given the macro. But I want to hear them reiterate that they think they can get to seven billion in free cash flow by 2024. If they can do that, I think the stock can rally, especially with it being down 20. 
21%. Recall, they have a wonderful aviation business. That's going to be the, the gem. That's going to be up double digits, right, because of uh, better than expected aftermarkets as well as supply chain. And then healthcare, the supply chain, if they can get that fixed, that's an excellent business too, offset by power and renewables, which is a mess, and they're going to see a loss. But they have a restructuring effort uh, underway uh, in the renewables business. So we just have to be patient on that. All right, Stephanie Link, good of you to join us. Thank you. Coming up, business on the ballot with the midterm elections just about two weeks away. Americans may be more likely than ever to vote with their wallets in mind. We'll explain why. Plus, Chinese tech stocks deep in the red as worries rise over Xi Jinping's power grab. We'll trade those names in today's three-stock lunch. And as we head to break, a quick programming note here. Goldman Sachs COO John Waldron sitting down with our own Leslie Picker right here on Power Lunch at 2.30 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. You won't want to miss that. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Business is on the ballot in the coming midterms as Americans grow more anxious over their economic prospects. Ilan Mui has the results of a new NBC News poll. Ilan? Well, Contessa, one thing that was very clear in the latest NBC survey is that Americans are angry, especially about the direction of the economy. The poll shows that half of Americans, exactly 50 percent, believe that the economy is going to get worse. That is a record high for NBC survey. And that financial anxiety appears to be eroding some of the momentum that Democrats had enjoyed at the end of the summer. Republicans and Democrats are still running neck and neck in the poll, 46 versus 47 percent for which party voters want to control Congress. But we're also seeing that Democrats are losing ground among core groups like black voters and women, especially white college educated women. And President Biden's approval rating on the economy is just 38 percent, significantly lower than his overall rating of 45 percent. So what do voters want to see? A whopping 84 percent said they would get behind someone who supports lowering health care costs and prescription drug prices. 67 percent want to see Washington fight inflation by cutting government spending. Only 55 percent would support a candidate who wants to combat rising prices by increasing taxes on corporations. It's all translating into record engagement in the elections this year. Early voting is already way up in places like Georgia. So, guys, we'll see if that carries through to Election Day. Uh, but, Ilan, wait a minute. I, I have a question here. If voters want lower prescription prices, the Democrats did that. Right. So the question is around messaging, right? The Inflation Reduction Act did a lot of different things, climate, prescription drug prices, also taxing on corporation. How do Democrats talk about that? And top Democratic leaders, including Nancy Pelosi, have acknowledged that Democrats need a sharper message on the economy. They need to convey to voters that, hey, this is something that we did and there's more to come. I couldn't agree with both of you more on this. I think, as I observe it, and what, what do I know? but that the messaging on the Democratic side has been abysmal. They have not come up with any message about what they're doing to fight inflation at all that well, I'm aware of. And in fact, Nancy Pelosi was on Face the Nation uh, yesterday and said, it's not about inflation, it's about rising prices. It's about the high cost of things. Well, what, is that a difference? I, that's, what, that's, what, uh, that's the splitting hairs that she said. But then she went on to point out, if you're looking at prescription drug prices, she must have seen the poll, to say... We, we've taken action on that. We've taken action to try and address uh, the fuel prices, but it was... Um, but as you, you know, say, Elon, it feels to me like there's a messaging deficit here uh, on, on the economy. Um, and, and they've got, what, three yeah, weeks? Yeah, one thing that came through... 
Yeah, one, two, about two weeks, two weeks really. Me, and one thing weeks. that came through in the poll is that Democrats and Republicans have very different ideas of what the problem in the country is. That Democrats think that America needs to be protected, protected from rolling back rights on Roe v. Wade or mm -hmm. LGBTQ rights or election integrity or even democracy itself. Republicans think that America needs to be saved from rampant inflation, from crime at the border, from illegal immigration, right? So they have these differing views of the problem that confronts America, and we'll just have to see which one voters pick come November. Interesting way to phrase it, being protected versus being saved. Very interesting. Elon Moy, thank you. Still to come, is China becoming uninvestable? We're going to trade some of the most exposed names in Three Stock Lunch. Okay, it's time now for Three Stock Lunch. And it's a time where we get nice and calm. We focus on China. We have a couple beverages. We focus on China. Let's talk about Tesla shares. They're lower after cutting prices for EVs in that country, that country being China. Alibaba shares, they're down along with other Chinese tech stocks after President Xi bolstered his political power. And Starbucks is getting attention because of its exposure to the world's second largest economy. It opened its 6,000th store in the country last month. How about that? All right, let's trade these names with Boris Schlossberg with BK Asset Management. Let's start with, uh, why don't we start with Tesla, Boris? Sure. Uh, Tesla, in my opinion, is a pass right now, a hard pass. We also have the news today that cutting prices 9%. That's never a good thing. But I think it's more interesting, basically, that the whole Chinese market is much more discerning than the U.S. market as far as consumers go. Consumers there are much more price conscious. And to me, this isn't just simply a function of softening demand, but perhaps greater choices for the Chinese uh, populace there as far as the EV market, which is very well developed. So to me, that's all headwinds. I think Tesla right now is a hard pass from every angle. You don't even have to worry about the Twitter sub story just um, on the car issues alone and the slowdown in China, which makes me very vulnerable to, uh, to, to be long that stock. So okay. I would definitely stay. I'm going to look for what Elon Musk tweets about Boris Schlossberg anytime now. Oh, or you know, I, I, try, I try never to mention his name in my tweets because I really don't want the feedback. I right? got you it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I totally get that. Okay, then let's talk about, uh, let's change the subject then. Alibaba, what do you think? So this is a really interesting stock because, I mean, it's just been a falling knife all the way down. And of course, we all saw the autocratic theatrics over the weekend, so there's just enormous amount of fear that Z really wants to consolidate the regime. On the other hand, you have to simply ask yourself, even you know, the strongest of autocrats realize that profit comes from capitalism. And this, you really want to destroy one of the greatest brands in the world and strangle it completely. I don't think so. And I think the story with Baba, now that it's so cheap as far as valuation goes, is just any tiny incremental positive, a loosening of COVID zero policies, perhaps a lesser regulatory oversight from, from the regime as long as they sort of stay on business and not get involved in any political um, posturing. All of that will give it enough breathing room for it to pop 25 to 50%. It's highly speculative, but I do think it has a chance because of its gross um, undervaluation and a chance of just slight positive headwind, to, uh, tailwind to make it go higher. Let's move on to Starbucks, uh, opening 6,000 store there. Wasn't long ago they were closing stores in China. Right. Well, you know, they were closing stores because of COVID, I think. But ultimately, yep. the bet in Starbucks is really interesting. It's a long-term bet. Here's a super interesting statistic. In urban air, no, average Chinese uh, consumer drinks nine cups of coffee per day. How much do you think an urban Chinese consumer drinks? 300 cups of coffee per day. 
That's the Starbucks opportunity. They see an immense total addressable market. That cannot be right, Boris. Are you sure? The average Chinese person drinks 300 cups of coffee a day? No, no, no. The average Chinese person drinks only nine cups. But the people who live in urban areas in China, who live in the coastal cities, who work at 24-7, 365 global kind of a day, they consume almost 300 cups a year. But how many trips a year? A year, a year, not a day. I say a day. I'm sorry. You said a day. I, I, my <laughs> kidneys were just throbbing uh, over the possibility of that. Must have been talking about me when I was talking about 300 cups of coffee. A day. Uh, sorry about that. No, I meant the, I meant the year. But you, you get the idea that there's just this enormous total addressable market out of Starbucks, and that is their bet. They want to go 50% more boxes than they already have now. They have yeah. 6,000 go to 9,000 by 226, and the bet in Starbucks is a long-term bet. So to me. If you want to establish a position here, the stock is weak. I'd rather sell the puts, get myself tactically um, positioned maybe at around 75, 70s in in the trade. But if you believe that the Chinese market is going to continue to grow and the Chinese consumer is inevitably going to become addicted to caffeine like the rest of us, that is a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. I was like, what are they doing the other 65 days of the year then? How do they get, get by? If yeah, you're, if you're, I, mean, you'd be, I would have such a headache <laughs> if I didn't have my coffee. So somewhere between nine cups and 300 cups <laughs> is what we're talking about. Boris, Correct. thank you, my man. My pleasure. We appreciate Take it. Care. Up next, the impact of the pandemic in the nation's classroom. Our nation's report card next. Big story, we're watching test scores in America. The largest education department analysis since the pandemic shows sweeping declines in reading and math across most demographics. Math scores for eighth graders fell in nearly every state. 26% proficient, down from 34% in 2019. Reading proficiency, 31%. For fourth graders, 36% proficient in math. The real question is, how do we fix it? How do we turn it around? Because these numbers have big implications for business in the United they States. They absolutely do. They correspond, obviously, with the with the uh, pandemic. And I don't think we've fixed uh, that deficit yet in any way. Thanks for watching Power Lunch, everybody. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.